Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I'm Dana Dennis, and today I'm happy to bring you an interview with Dr. Jeevan Sharma about his new book, Crossing the Border to India, Youth, Migration, and Masculinities in Nepal. It was published in 2018 by Temple University Press as part of their series on global youth. Dr. Sharma is a senior lecturer in the fields of South Asia and international development at the University of Edinburgh. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, and welcome to today's interview on New Books in Anthropology. This is Dana Dennis, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jeevan Sharma about his book, Crossing the Border to India, Youth, Migration, and Masculinities in Nepal. Jeevan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Dana. I'm really happy to have you with us. Usually our first question on the New Books Network is an autobiographical question. So I'm wondering if you would mind telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to do research on this topic and then eventually write this book. Uh, Right. So um, I'm a Nepali uh, anthropologist, uh, currently uh, based in, in Edinburgh, Scotland, um, where I teach uh, South Asia and international development. So I grew up in Nepal, in Palpa district, uh, which is where I you know, went back to do uh, my field work. Uh, I went to school there uh, and, and came up to do my uh, undergraduate degree in Kathmandu and then went to do my master's degree in Bombay. Uh, so you can, and then came to Edinburgh to do my PhD. So you can see my book, uh, which is basically uh, based on my doctoral research with, uh, you know, uh, follow-up field work uh, in, in the later years is very much, uh, you know, uh, following on my own life sort of trajectory in that sort of sense. Um, my interest is, is is mainly in the field of international development, uh, broadly defined. Uh, uh, that includes other international responses, such as humanitarianism, development aid, global health, human rights, uh, in the context of developing world. And and I bring sort of you know my own expertise in Nepal to approach those those wider sets of questions. I work mainly in South Asia, although I've done some work in Africa in Malawi. Um, but that South Asia is, is where I do most of my my, my work. Um, as I as I as I mentioned to you just now, uh, bulk of the material for this book is based on my uh, doctoral research, uh, which I did in two thousand and five. Uh, but I did uh, continue to travel to um, different parts of Nepal for my fieldwork and on, on a number of other issues. Uh, to do with social transformation following uh, Nepal's conflict, but also to uh, India, uh, to back to Mumbai, but also to other destinations such as Delhi uh, and other smaller uh, cities and towns in, in Uttarakhand, um, in Nainital, uh, Simla, and other, other cities uh, and towns uh, in North India. So... Yeah, that's. I think that's very much uh, where where I come from. And uh, if you think about the book, um, you know, uh, my PhD was 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 also in, informed by my own uh, uh, experience of growing up in Palpa. But my own, you know, for my studies, I I went to Mumbai, so I had some sort of exposure uh, uh, on this uh, issue of migration to India but never sort of saw it as a research uh, sort of topic or a field that I would eventually pursue. Just before I came to do my PhD in Edinburgh, I happened to work uh, as a consultant uh, uh, in Nepal for a couple of USAID-funded projects on uh, migrant workers and their sexual health. So that took me to the uh, western part of Nepal, the far western part of Nepal, to Doti and Bajang districts. Uh, and later on, uh, in a separate but related project, uh, all the way to Mumbai, to really uh, look at this question of migrants' um, uh, uh, risk uh, to HIV. So it is very much sort of focused on, on, on that uh, which is what I sort of, you know, problematize uh, much later in my book. So this book is basically, you know, sort of therefore follows on uh, uh, some of my um, uh, professional or sort of, you know, experience uh, following uh, my master's degree in Nepal as well. Um, Then, of course, there is, you know, wider sort of uh, issues uh, to do with social change in Nepal, uh, where, which is what I, you know, I can remember reading, 
a couple of articles, um, uh, one by uh, Piers Blakey, David Seddon, and John Cameron on you know their revisit to their uh, original Nepali crisis book uh, that came, came out in World Development, and also reading uh, the revisit of uh, Alan McFarlane uh, uh, back to his his field site uh, uh, in North of Pokhara. Both of these texts um, spoke uh, in, in, in a significant way uh, about uh, out migration, uh, including to India, and that really, really saved my thinking in 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 doing this study uh, in the first place. So, I would stop here. Thank you. Um, so, for our listeners who might not know very much about Nepal, they might not be aware. Um, just how much labor migration is a huge factor that shapes Nepal's economy and society. You've mentioned a few texts that you read that um, were sort of formative or formative in your thinking about migration, and of course, your own experience um, moving from Palpa to Kathmandu and then on to India and on to Edinburgh. Um, but I'm wondering, for the sake of our listeners, um, can you give them a brief overview of the history of labor migration in Nepal and explain? Um, briefly, why it's such an important part of so many people's lives. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, what is really interesting in the context of Nepal is there's a long history of uh, labor migration in Nepal. And I've argued in my book uh, that uh, one ought to understand this phenomenon uh, within the framework of culture of migration. Um So migration uh, in Nepal has, you know, uh, a long history as far as, you know, people often talk about uh, recruitment uh, in in British Army, and that is to do with international uh, uh, migration. But prior to that, there has been, uh, you know, long long standing out-migration within Nepal across the border to India, very much driven by state policies of extraction, um, you know, to, to do with uh, you know, people being forced out of their land um, due to taxation, forced labor, and so on, um, into this uh, uh, practice, uh, what we now uh, call, uh, you know, uh, Lahore practice uh, in, in Nepali, uh, is this recruitment in, in British Army, uh, which started uh, uh, in, you know, uh, more than you know, two hundred uh, years back. So you could, you could see that uh, practice shaping in the Middle Hills in Nepal. Uh, of course, uh, focusing on specific ethnic groups uh, uh, as martial race. There is quite a lot of writing on that. Then, then you have uh, you know long-standing uh, out migration from Nepal, both from the hills as well as Tarai. Uh, that sort of coincided uh, with uh, Indian independence and India's sort of urbanization moment uh, following independence, uh, the growth of middle classes and so on. Uh, that's where a lot of you know uh, migrants I've worked with uh, have been to Indian cities uh, in you know since 1960s, 70s to work as chokidars, um, as security guard, uh, or as domestic workers uh, working in shops and, and so on. Um, and then since about 1980s, escalated in 1990s and 2000, is this uh, you know, uh, practice of uh, contract-based uh, uh, migration to work in the Gulf states in Southeast Asia. So I guess what I'm what I'm saying here is 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 that uh, which I outline in my book is there are different waves of out migration in Nepal, and uh, that has historically shaped uh, Nepal's uh, uh, economy, uh, culture, and politics uh, to a great great ex- extent. Um, although uh, in the, in the policy uh, debates and public debate, I would say that uh, migration has been uh, picked up uh, or, or, or discovered uh, only in late 1990s with the uh, book New Lahore uh, by David Seddon and uh, Jagannath Adhikari and Ganesh Gurung. Uh, which is basically a DFID-funded uh, 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 research uh, turning into a small book that was published out of uh, uh, Nepali NGO. 
but that also made it into an article in Critical Asian Studies, uh, which is where this whole debate on remittances um, uh, came up uh, uh, and was discovered, I would argue, uh, which is where it became such a big issue. But historically speaking, uh, out-migration has always been a big issue in Nepal, both for those who migrate, but also for those who stay back. Uh, Writing uh, in 1960s, you've you've already seen how hill agriculture um, was very much dependent on remittances uh, sent by uh, 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 Nepali men, those who worked in Indian Army. Uh, John Hitchcock has written about this. Uh, so you could you could see that uh, you know the cash inflow into the hill economy uh, was very much uh, a, a, a result of this this form of of, of migration. Uh, so that's the sort of economic bit, and and you can you can I would argue that you cannot understand uh, Nepali society today without factoring in. Um, the social uh, meanings, uh, the sociocultural meanings associated with out-migration, but also the economic meanings of, of out-migration. So that's that's what I would I would I would argue as as the sort of you know, there's a long-standing uh, culture of migration that people, uh, because of the, the particular political economy of Nepal, uh, you know, largely uh, being agriculture for a long time. Transitioning into uh, in in the nineteen seventies eighties with the you know new uh, uh, mantra of, of the development with access to roads and modernity and you know all these forces um, uh, you know making their ways into rural parts of Nepal with radio and you know uh, expansion of telecommunication networks and so on and migration has come to be seen as as a source of of uh, access to mobility for uh, and modernity for a large number of uh, young uh, men and women uh, in Nepal. I definitely agree that um, it's it seems foolhardy to try to understand um, Nepali society today without considering migration. I'm remembering a moment at some point in my field work. I did my dissertation field work in Nepal in 2014 and 2015. And at some point relatively early on, um, I realized that um, I didn't know a single person who didn't have a family member who had migrated at some point. Um, and I was based in Kathmandu, um, where the history of migration is perhaps a little bit different than it is in Palpa. But, uh, but yeah, every, you know, I actually sat down and sort of like made a list of everyone <laughs> that I sort of knew personally and their family members who were in the Gulf or in Australia or in um, the U.S. or in Malaysia, just all over the place. It's really, really um, an endemic and very important feature of Nepali society, which was why I was so excited to to read your book um, and think more about what this culture of migration means. Absolutely, and I think you, know, you see this sort of you know constant as you outlined quite nicely. I think you know it's impossible to find households where you know they don't have any, you know someone who is out outside of Nepal, but also this constant uh, aspiration amongst the, the youth. Uh, in Nepal, although they have not yet migrated, and not all of them are going to uh, uh, be able to migrate, the constant pressure that uh, they are under, uh, because uh, all their you know uh, friends, cousins, relatives, neighbors have been somewhere, um, it's impossible for them to kind of you know escape that social uh, cultural force surrounding them. I think uh, that's really really interesting, and I, I wish more people sort of you know. Uh, work on this. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, so in the introduction to your book, you outlined three key concepts that you use to sort of shape your analysis. And these are livelihoods, um, gender with a specific focus on masculinities and structural violence. So do you want to just kind of briefly outline for us how those three concepts kind of inform your study? Yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, I, I, I thought these three concepts uh, offered me a framework uh, to tell the story that I tell in this book um, um, about these men uh, who, who uh, 
uh, have migrated to India. Uh, first of all, uh, to put it very simply, uh, I use the concept of livelihoods uh, uh, because uh, one of the one of the sort of you know uh, questions that one has is you know why do these uh, uh, men uh, migrate to India and the obvious answer is to manage their livelihoods is to you know it's a life, lifelong long practice in the village you know elders have done it you know people have been going to India uh, and and they would say just a way of life you know my, my question was probably not right to them in that sense that why did I even ask that question isn't it obvious like you know it's 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 like asking question why do you go and do agriculture uh, in the field so it was very much a part of their uh, livelihoods in the sense that this is how they manage their life and and here I don't just mean uh, I don't just use the word livelihoods to just talk about the economic aspect of livelihood that migration gives uh, them some money but also that it is highly gendered and there are sort of certain expectations that uh, if you you know come from certain economic sort of background uh, I think children quite quickly learn that um, they ought to, uh, uh, you know, travel uh, outside to, uh, to 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 manage to support their family to to experience the world. So I, I use livelihoods in that sort of uh, uh, broad, slightly uh, uh, it's expansive sort of uh, uh, form to not just talk about uh, the economic uh, contribution of uh, uh, migration, but also social, uh, cultural, uh, gendered uh, uh, meanings associated with migration. The second uh, term, which is what I've already sort of touched on, is uh, gender and masculinities. And uh, these are men, and yet we know that, you know, uh, men are often uh, not uh, seen as gendered beings. Uh, and exclusively I was working with these um, men, although there, there are women uh, migrants uh, uh, to India, uh, I have argued that you know, uh, as, as 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 much as ninety uh, percent uh, of those who migrate to India are 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 men. Um, there are women, those who accompany men, but also women who migrate independently. And there is a lot of sort of debate, public debate, uh, discourse on trafficking. Um, I, I you know that's not uh, what, what this book uh, is is all about. It's very much focusing on if these men are are going to India. There ought to be a gendered angle, and I thought of, therefore, sort of approaching this uh, 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 practice uh, by, by using the concept of masculinities and broadening it out, not just uh, to these men, but then asking the question, what does it mean to be a man um, in, in, in the Middle Hills in Nepal? And where does uh, this particular practice fit in? What does it mean to migrate? You know, are they, how are these men viewed and how do they uh, 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 attempt to achieve uh, uh, what they set out to achieve in, in terms of their gendered uh, uh, journeys and gendered projects? And the third concept uh, is structural violence. And I think it's also quite obvious um, um, that uh, the context in which these men that I've worked with are coming from, from uh, rural uh, 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 villages in Nepal, in this case uh, from Palpa, but also in uh, many other sort of uh, contexts that I've done field work. Um, uh, those who go to India come from very particular socioeconomic uh, background. Um, uh, they are poor. Uh, there is, uh, of course, uh, a long history of out-migration. Um, they have very little land or no land. Uh, they are likely to be Dalits, but also could be Bahuns and Muggers in, 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 in my sort of case. So they're already sort of disadvantaged in the source uh, context. And I've tried to kind of situate this in the context of Nepal's uh, history uh, and, and, and political economy. Uh, in the first place, that's, that's, what, that's what creates certain conditions uh, uh, for out-migration. Then structural violence was very much... Uh, uh, a phenomenon when I was crossing the border with these uh, men in, in Sonoli border, but also in other borders in, 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 in the far western uh, and midwestern part of Nepal, was that these, these men experienced uh, uh, border very differently. That uh, uh, this is 
the border crossing itself was quite quite an interesting experience for me uh, to travel with them to see their nervousness and how they attempted to cross the border with uh, other friends uh, or relatives and neighbors that they were traveling with that border officials and transporters and you know NGOs uh, who are guarding the border to check trafficking uh, were constantly uh, uh, ill-treating them, I would say, um, uh, asking them questions, dragging them sometimes physically. Uh, so that, that's where I, I argue, that's where uh, uh, the experience uh, uh, gained uh, structural violence that made them much more vulnerable. And that's where the production of a Nepali uh, uh, you know the transformation of a Nepali uh, young man or a man Nepali man into a labor for the labor market uh, in India is produced right at the border. That's where you get the first big shock of that transformation uh, that turns the, the very political border turns you into a docile economic migrant in that sort of sense. And then in India. Um, in Indian cities, which is where I've sort of, you know, and, and towns, which is where I've done most of my work, uh, Nepali migrants uh, work uh, as, uh, as I mentioned earlier, as, uh, you know, domestic workers, as chokidar, security guard, or at, at these sort of, you know, menial sort of jobs um, uh, at a very, very little, uh, uh, you know, with very little amount of money that they, they make uh, doing this sort of work. Uh, and and this is not necessarily free labor. This is based on social networks, long-standing social networks that they have. Uh, they are a part of, uh, sort of filling in job for someone who is returning home, or you know, job is always organized through these uh, social networks. And they live in slums. You know, when I did my field work, I was living with a group of young men, uh, young and older men, uh, in this uh, slum um, in Bombay. Um, so life was, uh, you know, uh, so they're working long hours for, you know, not a lot of money. And they're always uh, under constant pressure to work overtime, you know, doing car, you know, washing car or, you know, doing some other work to try and save more money. But it, and, and they were not necessarily, uh, I would say, um, on the hindsight, not necessarily discriminated uh, just for being Nepali, because there are other migrants in Indian cities, they are also equally discriminated, or even sometimes even more, more so than Nepalis. Uh, I would argue. Um, I can talk about that uh, uh, later if we have time. But I think what is interesting is uh, the context in which these men were working and living in, in, in Mumbai and other other cities and towns was very much constraining. Uh, their life and was very much constraining their project to go to India to earn money and you know send money back home was simply made difficult and impossible by by the very very structure of work and the living condition um, in India and they were basically leaving their family behind and I got you know hooked into this idea uh, of you know the production of labor. Uh, is very much uh, is, is taking place back in Nepal, and the production from that labor is taking place in in, in India, and that's where these these, these uh, men are disadvantaged in the sense that the surplus that they generate is being is being fueled to reproduce the labor. They're you know sending their children to school and so on. We can see this in a very positive way, but also you could you could view that they're actually reproducing. Uh, uh, investing in the future labor uh, that is going to come to India. Uh, so I thought structural violence gave me that sort of framework to tell the story uh, uh, of, of these men. Uh, so for that, for those reasons, I, I just picked up these three concepts. Uh, and I, I, I attempted to write this book uh, not just for, you know, anthropological audience or academic audience. I wanted it to be as, as far as possible to be accessible to a generic uh, audience as well. And I thought these three concepts uh, made sense. Yeah, I agree that um, the book reads in a very accessible kind of way. It doesn't, um, it's not overburdened with jargon like a lot of ethnographies um, sometimes are. So that's one thing that I um, appreciate and can recommend to our listeners. Um, I want to go back a little bit um, and think about 
how do um, the kinds of career options that are available to young men from Palpa, um, how do those um, kinds of career options that are available to them tie into local concepts of masculinity? And in my mind, this is kind of related to the question of choosing India as a destination as opposed to choosing other destinations. You mentioned that the the young men in your study are already um, pretty poor, often marginalized in a lot of ways. And so I wondered if you would speak to us about how that um, influences their choice of India as a destination as opposed to the Gulf countries or Australia or other places that they might go. Yeah, I think I think it's a very, very important question. I think, uh, you know, being a young man in Palpa or in a similar sort of context in the middle health, um, the question is, you know, what what sort of options, career options uh, do you have in front of them? Uh, if you come from a very poor background, you know, one option is obviously to work in, in the field, in agriculture. Um, and that, that option is also quite limited, uh, both structurally, uh, but also, I think, you know, with the forces of, of modernity and schooling and so on, uh, there is a big force uh, uh, with, you know, uh, we've been told that, you know, education is freedom and, you know, sort of you should send children to school and so on. Um, so th- there is certain kind of pathologizing uh, of, um, uh, of farming that you could read in the eyes of uh, young men in these, in these villages. They don't necessarily see um, themselves as uh, working in farms, um, so that's sort of you know seen as not quite uh, desirable. So what they're really trying to do, the forces, uh, the force that they're trying to really uh, 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 work with, is the, the whole force of modernity and the schooling that is very much present, uh, although not always accessible and not always. Uh, it doesn't always. Um, uh, they don't. They're not always successful in in that sort of schooling project, but the schools are present throughout Nepal in rural areas, and the, the discourse is that you should go to school, and it's going to transform you into something. Um, so that they have to kind of really work with that force, and you know, almost all the men I spoke to, you know, had been to school, had obviously dropped out. Uh, uh, at different stages, it's class three to class seven to class ten. You know, SLC being very important, uh, sort of iron gate for uh, the school leaving certificate uh, exam uh, in Nepal, being very important for many of them. So, so options are 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 are, are very limited in in the sense that you know very few those with those who have some sort of social political networks would be able to get into this schooling ladder and then into the ladder of some sort of, you know, salaried employment. And and that's very much desired for, and, and especially for Bahuns, the Brahmins, um, that's what the desired form of career options is. You know, that's what that's what they want to do, to get into schooling with using your sociopolitical networks, get into the job as a teacher, as, you know, uh, as some sort of, you know, salaried employed person uh, in the government job, if you can, uh, that, that's what one is really, really aspiring to. And for the muggers that I was working with, um, they had, a, you know, that itself was going through transformation, but they had, you know, traditionally been to this this idea of being a lahuri as the, the desired form of masculinity for them is to be recruited into British army, if not, then into Indian army, if not, into Nepali army or police is is sort of you know playing around this very much of this this idea and practice around the recruitment in the army um although schooling was very much valued uh but schooling was not to lead to some sort of you know salaried employment in the government jobs or you know uh, working as teachers and so on and health force it is very much to transition into the recruitment market uh, for uh, uh, army and police, that sort of job, and that that was changing. I would argue uh, with uh, the sort of you know broader social transformation in Nepali society, with the rise of uh, ethnic movement um, that was very much felt in the fieldwork areas where I had been. The muggers were also sort of you know seeing uh, that you know recruitment in foreign army should not just be the destiny that we should be aspiring to. 
we should be also looking forward to our own space in in the Nepalese state, in that sort of sense. So you, you could you you know I was able to kind of see that, and and there are you know there were some Magar families, especially those with former uh, 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 Gurkhas or you know former you know Lahore families, those who had some means. Uh, economic means as well as some sort of social network were investing into their uh, children's uh, education uh, and and were encouraging them to get into paid uh, uh, you know employment uh, um, within Nepal in, in in the government and so on. Uh, you know, the options are very for these men. The options are very little. You know, you could you know one option as I mentioned is to work in the farm. The other option is to you know to Go into the other extreme is to find work uh, in in the government. You know, so what is called zagir, uh, finding some sort of salary employment. For most of them, they are left with uh, this sort of you know precarious sort of life where they don't want to fall into the agriculture. But you know, if they don't migrate, that's where they end up. So what they what they try to do is to try their luck um, in, in 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 finding some sort of you know employment by going into little town within Nepal or to India to, you know, if you have enough money to go to the Gulf and other Southeast Asian countries. So you have, I think one has to sort of view um, the options these men have uh, within that sort of political economic context. There are very, very, very little options that these men have. And with schooling, agriculture turning into an undesirable sort of occupation, you know, working as a laborer, it's seen as 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 not quite desirable in terms of its gendered sort of consequences. You know, people would even call it, you know, sort of faltu kam or you know, working as a, as a holly, uh, you know, plowing the plowing the field. It's all seen as a sort of you know traditional uh, uh, sort of um, uh, career options. And the forces that they are confronting are very much uh, directing them to, towards this sort of idea of modernity. Is out there schooling, jobs, you know, cities, um, Kathmandu, Mumbai, Delhi, Utwal. You know, these are the sort of and radio, television, schooling textbooks are all sort of you know, you know, telling them uh, about these. And and uh, Stacey Pig has written uh, in her article about the sort of rural urban sort of divide in schooling text, and I, I saw that very much featuring into the minds of my informants in in in, in Palpa as well. Um, of course, the desirable uh, you know form of work is not available and accessible to uh, men that I worked with, and as as you as you as you commented earlier that you know. What is interesting for me is that although these men are, you know, they end up going to India, to Mumbai, to work in these sort of uh, yeah, chokidars or as working in hotels and restaurants as helpers, it is still seen as a desirable work than working in, in, in farms. And and that was very, very important for them to, because it was not just about work, it was also about experiencing the world outside of the village to be in Mumbai would mean yes, you may go and you know sort of wash dishes or you know uh, you know you know uh, work in um, uh, work as domestic workers and you know wash women's clothes and so on, but you also experience to see these high-rise buildings and Bollywood and you know uh, all those big roads and trains and so on. So going to India was not just about work; it was also about the broader sets of possibilities that it provided to young men. And some of them did, you know, um, uh, find a way out uh, from the sort of structural constraints of, you know, working only as sort of these menial, uh, in these menial sort of work sectors. But also sometimes, you know, they just got lucky and and got, uh, you know, a a, a nice sort of work. Uh, They may... uh, have found uh, a kind uh, employer, uh, what they call owner. You know, employer is often known as, you know, often called owners in in the language of these men. If they're working as domestic workers, uh, or, or working in, in in restaurants and so on. Uh, so that sort of tells you about the kind of how, how semi you know, kind of feudal semi feudal nature of work. But 
it also came with you know certain possibilities you may you know many of my informants uh, because there was someone working in the bollywood had they had ended up working in in the bollywood film sector so they would you know boast this sort of you know having seen some bollywood actors and having worked in you know so and so's sort of house so these 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 are also extremely important for these men yeah that was one thing that really stood out to me um, in reading the book it was just the the importance of sort of networks, right, for men arriving in Mumbai or in other destinations, um, plugging into pre-existing networks, often of family members or friends or people from the same village, um, as a way of sort of finding employment and maybe getting connected to some of these more desirable positions or um, better bosses or or other kinds of things. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed reading about was um, these sort of trial periods of going abroad or of um, basically running away from home that young sort of teenage boys would sometimes engage in. Um, certainly not always, but um, as a way of trying trying it out, trying to get those first experiences in the wider world. Um, can you explain a little bit more about that practice and and how it um, sort of serves as a rite of passage in terms of leaving home for the first time. Yeah, I think it's a very fascinating uh, practice, which is is very much on decline, uh, but was already on decline uh, at the time of my fieldwork, initial fieldwork, and was further on decline in, in my subsequent fieldwork. Was you know I was I was really really. Kind of intrigued uh, when I went to the village, uh, and also in 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 the destination of Mumbai, Nainital, Delhi, everywhere I spoke to, uh, most men, uh, the older men who had now become older in their forties, fifties, or even sixties, uh, had begun their migration to India, uh, often running away, um, you know, and then they would just giggle, you know, they would laugh. Uh, about that particular experience, and so it was very much framed as as fun, as a sort of you know this this very practice of bhagne, uh, or, or also you know running away, uh, was very much full of giggles and full of sort of you know laugh and 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 so on. So I wanted to kind of therefore sort of approach this as as something beyond the sort of this sort of you know pressure to migrate, uh, you know with economic necessity and so on. So I spent a lot of time talking to uh, others uh, in the village, and there were village teachers uh, who had now come back to the village. They had also, you know, run away uh, when they were when they were uh, small to the border town, Gorakhpur, or all the way to Delhi or Mumbai or to other cities in Punjab. So I was really, really interested. It, it seemed to me that almost everybody in the village at some point had run away or a few of them had gone, you know, you could call it runaway, or, you know, they had gone as a part of a group um, uh, with a few others in the village. Uh, you know, friends got together and decided, well, let's just go uh, to see the film. There was no film, uh, cinema in, in the near nearby town uh, at that time uh, for them, uh, although during my fieldwork there was. but uh, So they would even uh, run away from the village in groups to go to Butuwal to see the film which is about, you know, uh, 50, 60 kilometers from the village, would go to see the film for a few days. And uh, and this is this was quite common, in, you know, when I spoke to the people in, in the village, that, you know, young men uh, running away uh, in groups uh, was very common. So if someone doesn't come home, then they would go and ask, uh, well, well, you know, so-and-so hasn't come, and the other, 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 other young men in the village would, would also left. Um and they would say, oh, yes, they ran away. So a few days they will come back. If they don't, then you try and mobilize your social network to try and find or someone from the village, you know, maybe a couple of people from the village would go down to Butwal, to Tarai or to the border of Gorakhpur to try and find them. So what the reason for, for this is, is, is very interesting uh, is um, – this practice was very much on decline, as I mentioned earlier, was because of schooling that, you know, this practice was seen as a, as a problem that, you know, children uh, being dropped out from the school and running away 
was was seen as a, a, a you know as a characteristic of a delinquent sort of child. You know, the juveniles are running away from from school, and therefore they need to be disciplined. But also the very discipline uh, that goes into the schools in Nepal was also a cause of uh, of um, uh, running away because uh, not all men uh, had the sort of you know social support or. Uh, got a good sort of you know uh, classroom environment in the sense they they lost interest and they just you know would would run away because of this pressure to perform in in the school in the exams and so on. So therefore, I sort of argue that you know this was the first experience of going away from the village, uh, often not with your own family members. To experience the world outside, spending night outside as a rite of passage, it's is an indication of the age to come to for these 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 men, uh, and and following that, then you know you've been to Bhutan or to Gorakhpur or to Delhi uh, or Punjab to Mumbai, seen the world, uh, and so you're ready to embark on on your uh, in, you know uh, migration uh, sort of journey, which is very much present. In, in the village uh, uh, life, so that's how I argue that uh, uh, it is seen as as, as a rite of uh, passage. Of course, not for all, but uh, for uh, men coming from sort of background, uh, the socioeconomic background that I that I talk about. Oh, thanks for that. Yeah, it's definitely a gendered practice as well, right? Because um, while, of course, like for young boys, at least um, you know, in the decades prior to when you were doing your study, this might be seen as just a sort of like, oh yeah, this is what young boys do. They run away and go see movies and it's just sort of boyish high spirits. And um, of course, if girls were to do the same thing, it would be perceived very differently. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. um, I want to ask another part of the book that was really interesting for me to think about was um, the border itself between Nepal and India, which you write about as being a sort of paradoxical border, right? In the sense that it is an open border. People don't need visas to cross the border. Um, but at the same time, it's not necessarily easy. It's not um, It's not something that people can necessarily feel um, free to just come and go all the time. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Why is that border... Um, somewhat less open than we might at first expect. Mm-hmm. I think I think this is uh, quite 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 important when viewed from the perspective of the sort of young men uh, you know that I that I write about that I talk about. Uh, it's an open border in policy. Yes, it is open border. But if you actually go um, to the border, especially with these young men. And that's what taught me, you know, I'd crossed that border as a student when I went to study in Bombay and had you know, returned. It looked very different to me. But when I was traveling with these men, the border looked very different. And I, you know, I went again and again with, with these men. The border looked, you know, again, very different in the sense that it was not open border for these for these men because they were, first of all, conscious that there was going to be border. There were going to be border officials. They needed to uh, travel in groups. They needed to appear in a particular way, so they were self-disciplining even before they went to the border. All the excitement once they left the village, coming to the bus stop, you know, going down to Tarai, you know, on the rooftop of the bus, and so on. As the border approached, they were very nervous, and they would, you know, try and discipline how they should appear, you know, and when the rickshaw was going or when they were walking, and so on. But they were constantly being stopped by. Uh, transporters, rickshawalas, the you know immigration officials, police and the police side. You know there are different types of police. There are the sort of the, the civil civil police, the armed police, then the the border police force in Indian side, the customs in India. There are you know people's transporters, shopkeepers. Uh, Everybody is trying to stop them because basically they are trying to extort some you know money from them, and this becomes even more. Uh, 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 critical uh, when they're returning home with money. Um, uh, so for me, this is where I, I kind of, you know, all the debate around sort of in Nepal and India being having an open border. Yes, it is an open border and that's what facilitates uh, the migration of this large number of uh, uh, Nepali uh, uh, men and, and some women to India to work. 
but it it's not uh, open. It's also classed in the sense that it is uh, it may be open to people uh, with uh, from certain class background, uh, with certain ethnic background, and so on. But not necessarily it is open for uh, in, in in practice uh, from the perspective of these men who often go through this this form of ill treatment. And, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, that's where a lot of disciplining work that goes into uh, uh, into crossing the border. And and I this is where I argue that the production of labor is 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 done right at the border. So the disciplining of a Nepali man into a potential labor, a docile labor, a worker that is needed to work in Indian houses or in in shops or in you know neighborhoods or whatever you know in, in middle class households or in shops and you know service sectors in India is 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 a consequence of the very process of border crossing. So this is where they are made to feel that you're no longer a young Nepali boy who can just run around and shout, um, but is now disciplined. And therefore, I, 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 I argue that this border is quite paradoxical in the sense it's not necessarily open for, the, for them. So they have to you know, mobilize various strategies to navigate the border and, and make it open for them. Thanks. In one, um, in one place, you mention um, that Nepali migrant workers are treated as sort of neither foreigners nor natives when they arrive at their destinations in India. Um, and so as a sort of follow-up to this question about borders, I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit more what you mean by that um, and maybe relatedly why it's difficult for these migrant workers to access public services, for instance, when they're in India. Yeah, I think I think this is, you know, this is quite a unique situation in the sense that uh, because of Nepal-India having this uh, open border in, in at least in policy, um, uh, Nepalis are not perceived or both legally and otherwise as foreigners. They're treated as if they've just come from another state in India. You know, in the sense that they are always called Nepalis, but they're also Nepalis, uh, Nepali-speaking uh, population within India as well, in Assam and you know in uh, in in the northeast, of course. Uh, so. So they're not seen uh, legally as as foreigners. The 1950s sort of uh, treaty just you know has this sort of reciprocal uh, obligation of the host governments to treat them. But at the same time, they are not treated as citizens uh, at, at par with uh, Indian Indian citizens because Indian citizens uh, have certain forms of documentation like ration card or you know some sort of you know voter ID and so on. Um, or now Aadhaar card, uh, a form of you know a digital ID that Indian government has introduced now. Uh, although in its spirit of 1950s, if, you, you know the, the two governments that signed the treaty would have talked about you know this the concept of reciprocity. Of course, Nepalis don't have the voter ID in India. They don't have um, the same sort of you know, and their Nepali citizenship card, Nagrikta, is not going to work as an ID card. To claim certain services to prove that you need uh, you you deserve ration and so on. So what is interesting is that you know they're seen as just like Indians otherwise, except when it comes to documents and when it, when it comes to accessing services, you need documentation, both for Indian migrants as well as for Nepalis. And this this can be an issue, and this has been an issue for for Indian migrants, internal migrants as well. But Nepalis, uh, although they are international migrants, if you think of, they don't have documents, then there ought to be some sort of protection mechanism. Uh, you know, if you are international migrant, there are certain international uh, laws that would apply to you. But for Nepalis, there are no international protection mechanisms or laws that would apply to them, or at least in practice, I've not seen a single time uh, where it is being attempted or, or even talked about. Um, so there is, they are basically left without any form of protection mechanism that, at least in theory, is available to any other international migrants. Yeah, it's different. It's different um, than, like, for instance, the case of Nepalis who are in the Gulf countries who, um, you know, if they get into a bad situation, um, of course, at least in theory, they can they can call on the Nepali embassy to sort of support them. Um, 
that may or may not work out in practice for various reasons. But yeah, it's a different situation for these young men living in Mumbai and other cities. Absolutely. And I, I see, you know, what I find quite interesting, of course, in the context of the Gulf as well, we don't see, you know, human rights wards and amnesty and others sort of coming out in a big way when, when, when issues of ill-treatment and human rights abuses uh, are made uh, visible and legible in, in, in journalistic writings or reporting and so on. But in India, that's even, you can't even imagine, uh, you know, international human rights organizations or activists um, framing some of these, uh, you know, significant you know, sort of, you know, issues, apart from the, the tra- trafficking of women, uh, it does not even make it into uh, 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 of, of any of the international headlines for these organizations, because these are, I would argue, these, because these are poor migrants going to India, they are not an issue, you know, they are not, they're not international, they don't attract that much of attention as, migrants to the Gulf would attract even, even, even in that case, I would argue it's not, you know, significant sort of, uh, uh, you know, attention is being paid by international organizations, human rights organizations. And for Nepalis in India, you know, Nepali embassy has very limited sort of presence and it's, it's largely managed by Nepali migrant associations in India, any form of, you know, uh, work that we imagine embassy or other institutions, human rights or protection, you know, based institutions would be doing for, for, for um, migrants or for human beings in general, it's completely absent. They're not even seen as those with uh, certain entitlement to human rights, you know, universal human rights. And they're trapped because they think, oh, well, they're just, you know, Nepalese, and, you know, they're treated as Indians, but in, no, they're not. They're not treated as Indians. One of the few exceptions um, to this sort of general situation that you're describing of like very few NGOs or other organizations available to help these um, young migrants. Um, In the last chapter of the book, you talk about public health NGOs um, that um, exist to serve this population, um, but they see the migrant laborers um, basically is like vectors for disease and particularly focused on sexually transmitted diseases such as HIV. Um, but of course, as you describe it, there's a, there's a disconnect between how the NGOs see these migrants and the actual realities of these men's lives. So can you um, go into a little bit more detail about that? Yeah, thank you for asking this question. You know, and, and this, 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 this particular you know, chapter that I've written in, in the book you know, was very much inspired by the work I did, uh, as I mentioned, uh, uh, funded by USCID, where I was a consultant trying to, you know, do a rapid assessment of the risk behavior of migrants from the far western part of Nepal and then in, in Mumbai. What is interesting is, you know, migrants from the western part of Nepal as are, are very much seen in the public health discourses. If you read writings in 1990s, it was very much about these poor men, uneducated men, they go to India, they have no sense of responsibility, they don't understand the risk, that they're not just risking their life, but they're also risking the lives of their families, communities, and the nation back in Nepal. And therefore, this whole massive sort of intervention within the sort of largely biomedical sort of framework to try and sort of treat these migrants as ignorant, trying to teach them on how to engage in sex, you know, safe sex or safe sexual practices in the destination. And my experience, so what it showed was they were not ignorant. They knew, you know, they very much knew that there are risk sort of behaviors associated with, you know, visiting uh, brothels or they would say, you know, having affairs with women in the bar or, you know, in the, in the neighborhoods and so on. And it was very, very common for these men to have these sort of, you know, relationships. And, you know, that's one of the sort of, if you, if you meet these men outside of their working hours, they would often be talking about these sort of visits to the bar or to, you know, to brothels or it's, so you have to kind of therefore view the whole argument of the book is, you know, if you view these uh, practice of migration within the, within the you know, using framework of, of masculinities as these men as gendered beings, 
then the very practice of migration is gendered in the sense it is about sort of, you know, certain ideals or ideas of masculinities that a project of masculinity that these men are are attempting to to pursue um, and to treat these men uh, men's work and these men as we discussed just now uh, work in these sort of sectors of economy are often in these exploitative conditions um, away from their family with very little money living with all these men uh, you know sharing rooms these structural constraints put, you know, make them vulnerable in the first place. So the public health intervention was not looking at the social determinants, you know, to put it very simply, of risk behavior for these men, was rather focusing on these men's sexual practices, calling them ignorant, trying to teach them, you know, there's all these... IEC materials, radio programs, you know, peer education programs, and so on, but not really sort of looking at the structural constraints that put them in, 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 in you know, make them vulnerable in the first place, and the sociocultural meanings associated with migration and, you know, this exposure to consumption and having, you know, exposed to beer bar and, you know, uh, opportunity for love affairs and so on, uh, are a part of the package that men imagine when they are thinking about Mumbai or Delhi or elsewhere. So to disaggregate that and just treat migrant sexual health as a, as a target of intervention is problematic. Second, these migrants have significant other health problems, uh, although I have not written about this in, in, in details in the book. You know, they have massive, uh, you know, health problems. Uh, and I, I would argue those, both occupational and otherwise sort of set of health problems, those ought to be the priority because that's where they prioritize rather than just viewing them as, you know, sort of carriers of the disease and therefore being the disease themselves is problematic. Um, and that's what I mean by the disconnect between how these NGOs, these particular, particular projects, um, what they were trying to do and how these men saw their 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 life and their journey to to India. And if you really, yes, it's an issue. It's not to say that HIV is not an issue. If you really want to kind of, you know, tackle this, you have to really get into a much more gender-sensitive approach to uh, uh, men's health, but also their well-being in general, their working conditions and so on. If you improve their working condition, their sexual health risk is going to decline significantly, I would argue. Yeah, I, th- I found that to be a really convincing argument. I mean, um, if the NGOs are just kind of engaging in this like moral stigmatizing of certain kinds of sexual behaviors without thinking about um, the men's health and well-being as a whole, you know, they're living five to six to a, uh, five or six people to a room. Sometimes they're working extremely long hours. They're getting injuries on the job, you know. They are, they're exhausted. They have poor nutrition. There are so many factors that go into their health. And it seems like, yeah, um, as you're describing, there was a problem in the, in the ways that NGOs were conceptualizing them is like, oh, these men are doing things that they ought not to do. And it's because they're ignorant and therefore our intervention will be like to try to educate them. It was very, um, uh, frustrating to read about. And I'm sure as someone who works in public health, you have, often experience these moments of frustration. Okay. So as um, getting toward the end of the interview here, we've taken up a lot of your time, but um, you did the original field work for this project over a decade ago now, and you've done lots of um, follow-up research and research on other projects in the intervening years. Um, And Nepal has of course been through quite a lot of change in that time um, with the, the end of the Maoist war, the new constitution, the earthquake in 2015, all kinds of things have happened. Um, And I'm curious, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in Palpa um, and maybe elsewhere in Nepal that have affected the experiences of young migrant laborers? What has changed, I guess, since you did the research for this book? I think uh, significant changes in the political economy of the middle hills in Nepal with, you know, of course, beyond the, the political changes, there have been, you know, the penetration of rural areas with road networks, communication networks, mobile phones. Um, the whole 
aspiration for mobility is is much more omnipresent than than it was um, for the whole of uh, you know for the whole of the Middle Hills. So is this sort of the the penetration of the capital in the consumption, the commodification of land and labor and money has I would I would argue deeply penetrated has shaped how consumption is viewed in rural Nepal. Um, and I think that's the biggest sort of change. And I'm actually working on my uh, next book um, on the on the political economy of change and development in Nepal. Um, uh, you know, uh, hopefully uh, I'll be kind of going to be able to kind of finish that in by the end of 2020. Is really to try and trace these changes, and not just about migration, but about broader sets of changes. That was my interview with Dr. Jivan Sharma about his book Crossing the Border to India. Youth, Migration, and Masculinities in Nepal from Temple University Press. I'm Dana Dennis. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back again soon with another episode of New Books in Anthropology.